is Resurrection Sunday, 2022. Here at GCA, we gather for communion once a year, and we do it during the time, during the season of the year, that Christ was actually crucified, since it is a memorial of his crucifixion. And we also celebrate the fact that he raised again, because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most significant event in all of human history. There is nothing that even compares. The redemption price was paid for all of God's people, and as a consequence, we can say confidently that Jesus did not try to save anybody, that he actually saved his people, those people that were given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world, and that he came here and he accomplished the redemption and salvation of those people, which is why on the cross he could say definitively, it is finished, because the work he came to do was actually done. This morning, I'd like to begin at the very end of the book of Luke. I am in Luke 24, the very last chapter. This is Jesus talking to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. You may know the story. They have been amazed by the fact that some of the women in their group have told them that Christ was raised from the dead. And here they are making the roughly seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, And who meets them on the street but Jesus himself. But their eyes were withheld so that they wouldn't recognize him. And even though he was the very risen Lord who they were discussing at that very moment, their eyes could not recognize him. And so he showed them about himself in the scripture, which is a really interesting moment because you all know that I am adamant about scripture. I'm adamant about every word of scripture for reasons like this. Here is Jesus showing himself in scripture before he would let his disciples see him in person. So he put a great deal of emphasis on the word of God. I'm going to pick up reading at verse 24. This is after Jesus has asked them, what are you discussing? As if he doesn't know. He says, what are you talking about? And they say, are you a stranger here in Jerusalem that you don't know? The events that are going on right now are kind of earth shattering. The one we were following actually died, was put in a tomb, and now we're told that he's raised again. And Jesus, meek and mild, always caring, friendly, seeker-sensitive Jesus, responds to them that they are foolish men. And slow of heart. So starting at verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. In other words, there was no body. Christ has actually resurrected. We are kind of dumbfounded by this. We're talking about it. And Jesus responds, O foolish men and slow of heart. Why would he say, such a thing to them. It seems like kind of a harsh comment. The reason that he has called them slow of heart and foolish is because they have not believed everything that's written in the scripture. So he says to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Wasn't this absolutely necessary? Had they known their scripture, had they known their Old Testament, they would have known that this was everything that the prophets predicted about Jesus. Now, there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that are predicted about Jesus that we see fulfilled in the New Testament, like... Zachariah saying that he's going to come lowly and riding on a colt. And then he actually went into Jerusalem on the day that we call his triumphal entry. And he was riding on a donkey 
and on a donkey's colt that no one had ever ridden before. But that's not what he centered in on here. The Old Testament also said that he was going to do miraculous things and great works. But that's not what he centered in on here. The Old Testament says that Jesus is going to do and say a great many things that are not what Jesus concentrated on here. The thing that he said to these disciples on the Emmaus Road is that you are foolish and slow of heart because the part you don't seem to understand or agree with is that I have to die and then be raised again to my glory. I would have loved to hear that sermon because then it says in verse 27, beginning with Moses, the Pentateuch, all the way back to Genesis, Starting with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What things? He has already told them, you're foolish and slow of heart because you don't believe, you haven't grasped everything the Old Testament has already told you. And then he went on to explain it to them, and I think that he concentrated on those portions of the Old Testament that had to do with his death his burial, and his resurrection, because that's what he centered in on here. You're foolish for not believing that this had to happen, that I had to die, that I had to suffer, that I had to raise again. How is it that you don't know that? It's right there in front of you. You're going to hear me say that a lot this morning. So I decided in lieu of actually knowing the sermon that Christ preached, we're going to go back and look this morning at some of the Old Testament passages that actually do predict the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And then we're going to see how it was fulfilled in the New Testament. And along the way, I'm going to keep saying, it's right there. They didn't get it, but it's right there. There's a whole world right now that doesn't get it. Amen. But it's right there. It's been written down for 3,500 years or more. And Jesus Christ actually did get up from the grave, and there is an empty grave over in Jerusalem. You know, if you go to Jerusalem today, they will show you, they'll take you on tours, and they'll show you different locations where different biblical events took place. And they can show you the various different tombs that they think belong to different saints of the Old Testament and the New but they'll take you to two different places where they think maybe the tomb of Jesus is. Do you know why they don't know? He's not in it's empty. Yeah, it's empty. There's nobody there. It's been lost to history. History proves, history demonstrates that Jesus Christ got up again. He resurrected again. He is alive to this very day. In other words, it's right there. It's right in front of you. It's been declared, it's been prophesied, it actually occurred in human time and history. We even date our calendars by year of the Lord, Anno Domini, that's what A.D. stands for, or B.C., before Christ. So even our society is structured around the fact that Jesus Christ died and got up again. It's right there. It's right in front of you. So let's start this morning you all can turn to Isaiah 53. That seems like a good place to start this morning because certainly there are lots of predictions and prophecies in Isaiah 53. You should all be familiar with it. While you're turning there, I'm going to quickly read an example from Zechariah. Zechariah 13.7 says, Awake sword against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And then in Mark 14, 27 and 28, you're also going to find this in Matthew 26, we read, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it's written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. So here's an example of Jesus himself in predicting his own death to his own apostles, saying, this is going to happen because it's written down. It's already in the prophecy. It's already in the text. Therefore, when I die, you're all going to scatter. That's one of the things we know, is that the apostles 
all scattered when Jesus died, trying to save their own skin. When Jesus died, he had already told them repeatedly, I'm going to get up in three days. When he got up on Resurrection Sunday morning, there should have been 11 guys standing outside the tomb going, yep, that's what you told us. And instead he got up and there was nobody there because they all scattered. And why did they scatter? Because Zechariah already prophesied that they would. And so Jesus said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered because that's what's written. Once God declared it, once God said, this is how it's going to happen, there was no choice but that it was going to happen that way. So I want you to get that mindset this morning that everything we're going to look at this morning are the things that have been written, and then we're going to see the satisfaction and fulfillment of those things because it's been written. It couldn't be any other way. If any of this could have been written and then turn out differently, then this is not the word of God. We can all go home and get a good nap. But because these things are written and because these things are fulfilled, it is yet again evidence that this is the very word of God. And that means Jesus actually did get up out of the grave. And that means it's right there in front of you. Do you get it? Yes. Let's read out of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 1, who believed our message? (laughs) It's right there in front of you. Who's believed it? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because the word of God is revelatory. It has to be revealed to you. I can't tell you the number of times that I have read the text of the Bible to people, and they don't get it. You can see the brain death happening. Just just nothing going on. They just don't get it. Why don't they get it? And we do because it's been revealed to us. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him, before God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried." Yet we ourselves esteemed him as stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his stripes, by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb who is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people? to whom that stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot to him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, Because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded 
for the transgressors. There are a tremendous number of prophecies there about actual physical things that had to take place in time and history, things like he had to die with malefactors. And of course, we know that there were three crosses between two thieves. And yet, he was with a rich man in his death because he was in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. How did Isaiah know that 700 years in advance? And yet it was written down, so it had to happen. It couldn't have happened any other way. Why did Joseph of Arimathea go to Pilate and beg for the body of Jesus and then put Jesus in his own tomb? Because the sun was going down, the day was ending, the high day was coming, he had to get that body off the cross. And all of that, though it seems circumstantial, happened exactly because Isaiah wrote it down 700 years before. It's right there in front of you. Therefore, in 1 Peter 2, we read, I'm going to start reading at verse 21. You, you all have been called for this very purpose because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his footsteps. And then he quotes right from what we just read. He who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself brought our sins into his own body up on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, we were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Okay, let's contrast those two things. Isaiah 53 versus what Peter wrote. Peter is writing after the fact and reciting the fact that all these things actually occurred. And because people will miss it, he's pointing it out. Every one of them. The fact that he didn't respond in kind, the fact that he bore our sins, the fact that we are healed by his sufficient sacrifice. So Isaiah predicted it before Jesus came to the planet. Jesus came to the planet and did exactly in the detail what the scripture said he was going to do. And then Peter, looking back on it, wrote, yep, he did it. It's right there in front of you. Evidence that he is the very son of God. Do you get where we're going this morning? Because I got pages and pages of notes. Jeff earlier said that I was going to need about two and a half hours. I'm thinking three. So. That's a joke for the visitors. It's going to be okay. There's going to be food in the back. We're going to feed you. We're not going to send you home hungry. You're going to be fine. So back up off me. <laughs> Turn to Psalm 22, if you would. On Wednesday nights, we have been going through the Psalms here. And we have been seeing how remarkably prophetic the Psalms actually are. While you're turning to Psalm 22, I'll read a little portion of Isaiah 50, which says essentially the same thing. Listen to this detail. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who will pull out my beard and I did not hide my face from their insults and their spitting at me. Psalm 22, starting at verse 1, says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Sound familiar? These are the very words that Jesus spoke while he was on the cross. And why did he speak those particular words? Because it was already written. It was already in the text of the scripture. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. And yet... Thou art holy, O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In thee our fathers trusted. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered. 
In thee they trusted and were not disappointed, but I am a worm and not a man. I am a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip and they wag their head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. They're saying that sarcastically. As he's dying on the cross, they're mocking him and saying, You trusted the Lord. Let him deliver you. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when I was upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help, but bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me, and they opened wide their mouth at me. Like ravening and roaring lions, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melting within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou dost lay me in the dust of death. David is describing crucifixion here and what Jesus is going to feel when all his joints and bones are pulled out of joint. And he's so thirsty that his tongue is cleaving to the roof of his mouth. As David is writing this, crucifixion doesn't exist. It would take a couple hundred more years before the Persians invented crucifixion. And then the Romans came along and said, that looks painful, but not painful enough. I think we can improve on it. And they introduced nails. And yet the prophecy concerning Christ is that he was going to be nailed and crucified. And his bones were going to be pulled apart to the point where his sinews and muscles would ache. And he would be so thirsty out there in the hot sun that his tongue was going to cleave to his jaw. This is a remarkably accurate prophecy. Verse 16 says, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They pierced my hands and feet. Because Zechariah also predicts that they are going to look on the one whom they pierced. So that meant that they had to pierce him because Zechariah has already written that eventually they're going to look on the one whom they pierced. David has said here in the psalm, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones and they stare at me and watch me. So could anything else have happened? No, it was written down. This is exactly what had to happen. Can you see now why Jesus would say to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, you fools, slow of heart to believe what the prophets have written. Several of them have said the same thing, and you don't get it, and it's right in front of you. Psalm 22, 18, look at this detail. This is astounding. They divide my garments among them, And for my clothing, they cast lots. What an astounding little detail. If you know anything about the crucifixion of Jesus, you know that he had a seamless robe, which was considered so valuable that when the time came to tear up the clothing and divide up the fabric, the guards looked at it and said, no, this is valuable. Let's cast lots for it, and only one of us will get it, but let's not destroy it. How did David know that a thousand years in advance? And could the Romans have done anything other than cast lots for his clothing? No. Why? Because it's written. Verse 19. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword and my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Then thou dost answer me, and I will tell thy name to my brethren. Wait a minute. This is just like what we read in Isaiah 53. Here he is professing he's going to be dead, and then the dead man, God is going to see his offspring. 
God's going to bless him in long life. Hear the same thing, that he's a dead man, and yet he's going to tell of the name of God to his brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. So in other words, in this psalm, we see the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the preaching of Christ. Could it have happened any other way? Are you tired of me asking that question? Because I'm going to keep driving home this point. Okay, turn to the book of Mark. In the New Testament, go to Mark 15. Mark is written after the fact. David, Zechariah, Isaiah, all wrote before the fact. Then in time and history, it factually happened. And then looking back on it, the New Testament authors wrote it to say, look at that, it all actually happened. I'm going to start reading in Mark 15, starting at verse 16, because that's when we get into the crucifixion itself. The soldiers took him away into the palace that is called the Praetorium, and they called together the Roman cohort, and they dressed him up in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So they're mocking him, exactly like the prophets had said they would. And they kept beating him in the head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. Wow, spitting on him and plucking out his beard. Could anything else have happened? No, because prophetically it was already said that he's going to get beaten in the head and they're going to pluck out his beard and they're going to mock him. And that's precisely what actually happened. Mark, looking back on the event, writes it down and says, yep, that's what happened. After they had mocked him, says verse 20, they took the purple off of him and they put his garments on him and they led him out to crucify him and they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated the place of the skull, And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he would not take it. By the way, that is also prophesied, that they would try to give him wine, try to give him myrrh. That would have been an anesthetic. Jesus refused to take it when he realized what it was. It was very common as people were being crucified that in the throes of death, the Roman guard would give them anesthetic to reduce the pain as they died. When Jesus realized what it was, he refused to drink it because he was going to take on the wrath of God and the sins of his people with no anesthetic against the pain. It's a remarkable, astounding thing. Verse 24, and they crucified him and they divided up his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each of them should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left, just like Isaiah 53 said. And then just so you don't miss it, Mark adds in verse 28, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by hurled abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down off that cross. They're mocking him exactly the way that the Psalms and Isaiah said was going to happen. In the same way, the chief priests also with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. By the way, that's a truism. As he was dying on the cross, he was saving others. And he couldn't save himself. Because if he did, nobody else gets saved. So they, not knowing, are speaking this truism. Verse 32, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell on the whole land until the ninth hour And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? Because David already wrote it. It had to happen. Should I say it again? It's right there in front of you. It was predicted a thousand years before he came to the planet. Mark, looking back on it, says he did it because in time and history, every single thing that was prophesied about him in the Old Testament actually came true in time and history. It's an astounding thing. In John 19, 23 and 24, we get a little bit more detail about the soldiers casting lots for his clothes. John 19, 23 and 24 says, Then the soldiers... When they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garment and made four parts, a part for each soldier, and his tunic also. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it and decide whose it will be. And then John adds, this happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Even John says, therefore, the soldiers did these things. Why did the soldiers cast lots for his clothing? Because David said so a thousand years ago. Could they have done anything else? No. No. And why did they do it? John says they did it because it's already written down. It's right there in front of you. Matthew 27, 41 to 44, says in the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, so let him now come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. I'll add parenthetically, no they wouldn't. Because it wasn't revealed to them. Anyway, verse 43 says, quoting what we just read, he trusted in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. That's what we just read out of Psalm 22. The exact words they were going to say, standing at the cross and mocking him, David predicted a thousand years in advance. And then the soldiers stood right there and said it of their own free will, of their own volition. They said exactly what they had to say at that time and moment in time and history to prove yet again that the Bible is true to the exacting detail. And Matthew didn't want you to miss it. So he points out that they said that. Because Jesus had said, I am the Son of God, and they mocked him with exactly the words that were prophesied. Can you see again why Jesus would say, you're fools and slow of heart to not believe this. It's right there in front of you. How do you not see it? You watched me die. You know the events. It's right there in front of you. Okay, let me just read a couple quick other examples so that we can move forward this morning. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen says, My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery. My tongue clings to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. We read that. John 19, 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, I like that phrase, Jesus, knowing in himself that he had already accomplished everything he had come to the planet to accomplish, in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Is there any chance he was not going to say that? No, because it's already written down. It's been written down for a thousand years. Of course he's going to say it because the scripture had to be fulfilled. Psalm 69, verses 20 to 21, disgrace has broken my heart. I am so sick, and I waited for sympathy, but there was none. I waited for comforters, but there was none. And they also gave me a bitter herb. Some of your translations will say a poisonous herb for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Matthew 27, 33 to 36 says, They came to the place called Golgotha, we just read it, which is the place of the skull, and they gave him wine mixed with bile to drink, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. All I'm pointing out is that these minor little details are pointed out a thousand years in advance, and then they actually occurred in time and history, and then the disciples of Jesus wrote about it so that you wouldn't miss it. People still miss it. 
People still don't see it. People still don't get it. And I'm going to say it again. It's right there in front of you. Whoever you are on planet Earth, if you have access to a Bible, it's right there in front of you. Psalm 31.5 says, Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord God of truth. Sound familiar? Because Luke 23.46 says that Jesus on the cross cried out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And having said this, he died. Even his last words were predicted in the Psalms. Pretty soon you're all going to start saying, it's right there in front of you. Sure is. Psalm 22.16, again, going back to Psalm 22. The dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers encompassed me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 34.19 and 20. The afflictions of the righteous are many, but the Lord rescues them from all of them. He protects all his bones so that none of them are broken. Also in Exodus 12.46, there are instructions about the Passover lamb that it has to be eaten inside the house. <coughs> Take none of the meat outside and do not break any of the bones. Several prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus' bones are not going to be broken. So then we read in John 19, starting at verse 31. Now then, since it was the day of preparation to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews requested of Pilate, that their legs be broken and the bodies be taken away. Again, this was standard practice by the Romans in order to hasten the death of somebody who was hanging on a cross. They would break their legs so that they could no longer support themselves because if you're hanging like this or like this, your chest is starting to concave. You're having trouble breathing. You have to push up with your legs and pull up, which had to be incredibly painful, pull up like this to get a breath. So in order to hasten the death of people, they'd break their legs. They can no longer pull themselves up. They'd suffocate. And because the high day was coming, the Jews have asked Pilate to send Roman soldiers to go break the legs of the three that are on the cross. If Jesus' legs were broken, those prophecies from the Old Testament don't come true. Because not a bone of him was going to be broken. Verse 32 of John 19 tells us, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who were crucified with Jesus. But after they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. Wasn't that lucky? Because it was already prophesied, because it was already written down, because he was the Passover lamb. Not a bone of him could be broken. So even the timing of his death and the timing of his last words, giving up his spirit to God, was all timed perfectly so that not a bone of his body would be broken. It's amazing. Continuing in John 19, verse 34, yet one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and he who has seen this, this is John speaking first person, he who has seen this has testified, and his testimony is true. In other words, this is John saying, I'm an eyewitness to this. You don't get better evidence than an eyewitness. I actually saw these things, and I know it's predicted, and I saw it happen, and now I'm writing it to you to show you that everything that was prophesied about him actually came true. It's right there in front. Verse 35, he who has seen this has testified, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things took place so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not a bone of him will be broken, and another scripture which says they will look on him whom they pierced, that's Zechariah 12.10. That's why they put a spear in his side. Not just to prove he was dead, but because it was already written down. Amen. Am I boring you? No. I mean, this is amazing. Yes, yes. And even if you don't enjoy it, I'm going to stand here and enjoy it. Because <laughs> it's amazing. Look, Exodus 12, 21 to 27. And I am kind of wrapping up-ish, sort of. <laughs> Exodus 12, starting at verse 21. Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and told them, Go at once and select for yourselves a lamb for each family and slaughter the Passover lamb. 
take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and brush the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out the door of his house until morning, and when the Lord passes through to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway. So he will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and to strike you down. And you are to keep this commandment as a permanent statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord has promised to give you, you are to keep this service. And when your children ask you, what does this service mean? You're to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians and spared our homes. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. And the Israelites went and did exactly as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians, takes the typology of the Passover practice and recognizes Christ as our Passover lamb. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Psalm 16, 9 and 11 says, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my heart rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. In other words, you're not going to leave me in the grave. He's speaking prophetically here. He's speaking for Jesus that God will not allow his soul to remain in the grave. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the way of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. And then Pentecost comes after Jesus has come to the planet, died and resurrected. And Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. I love that phrase. Everything that Peter is saying here are facts. Jesus He's from Nazareth. He's a man. He performed miracles. He did wonders and signs in your midst, and you know all this. Verse 23, this man, delivered over by the predeterminate plan and foreknowledge of God. Have I proven that yet? Yeah. <laughs> that it was God who wrote it down in advance, and therefore the predeterminate counsel and plan of God is the reason that Jesus Christ actually died on the cross and actually raised again because all of it was written down a long time ago in advance. Again, can you see why Jesus would say to the disciples, how do you not believe this? It's in your scripture. You saw it happen, and now it's being recited, and you don't get it. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. Could they have done anything else? No. No, it had to happen. But God, verse 24, raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by the power of death. And why was it so impossible? Why could Peter stand in front of all these Israelites and declare all this? Because David says of him, and now he's going to quote right from David to prove yet again this was all written down in advance. David said of him, I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue was overjoyed. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope 
for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. He quoted directly from Psalm 16 in order to demonstrate that the resurrection of Christ was something that God also predicted. The death, the burial, the means of the burial, that he would die between two criminals and that he would be laid with a rich man in his death. And yet he'd be three days and three nights in the grave and then he would resurrect again and it would bring great joy and happiness to the people of God. That's all written down. What are we doing here this morning? Why are we here this morning? We're here because we're remembering. We're here because we are memorializing the fact that it's all written down. And that God, who is in complete control, has already told us not only what he was going to do, but what the end result was going to be. And it was going to be the salvation of all his people. And therefore, we can celebrate. Brothers, I confidently say, this is Peter going on and talking. Brothers, I confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this very day. You can find David's tomb, because there's still a body in it. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Peter didn't want you to miss it. He didn't want you to see the psalm and not understand that David was writing about Christ and writing about Christ's death and burial and resurrection. So now Peter is pointing it out to these Israelites, a mass assembled there in Jerusalem, and they should have known it. This is Peter's way of saying, it's right there in front of you. Amen. You should have seen it. So because he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. That's why once a year we stop and remember. That's why once a year we take these elements, the bread that signifies his body, the wine that signifies his blood, and we stop and remember, and I want each of you individually to remember. As you break the bread, remember that he broke his body for you. He gave his blood for you. Last thing, Psalm 1610 says, For you will not leave my soul among the dead, and you will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. Why did Christ resurrect? Why did Christ get up out of the grave? You should all know the answer, because it's written. It was already in the psalm, God will not leave my soul among the dead, and he will not allow the Holy One to rot in the grave. And that was fulfilled, demonstrated by the whole rest of human history. The very fact that Christianity has existed for the last 2,000 years, and the astounding grace that we have all found in God as a result of Christ's finished work, that is the proof time and time again that everything that was written in the scripture is true. If you're a Christian this morning, it's because God revealed Christ to you. Amen. And that is an astounding privilege. And you should not take that lightly. And so we gather this morning to remember. I think I'm done. Here's what we're going to do. Tom and Micah are going to hand out the elements. You will notice that when they bring you the plate with the bread on it, it is a flat bread. It is unleavened bread in keeping with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. It is a hard bread, which means it needs to be broken. We don't pre-break it for you. We want you to have that visceral moment of feeling 
the body of Christ broken for you. The body of Christ was broken for you because of your sinfulness, because of the depth of your depravity. But this morning, don't get caught in that cycle in your head where you start thinking about you. Some people will tell you that you should not take the communion unless you know you're worthy. I'll save you the trouble. You're not. This is an act of grace. This is a memorial to Jesus Christ where you remember him. Don't remember all the places you've been and all the things you've done and how unworthy you are. I don't care what you've done. Don't care how unworthy you feel. He's worthy. Remember him. Now, as they pass out the elements, hold on to the elements and we will all participate together. But take this moment silently to yourself to think about who it is that saved you, how far he came to save you, and how God wrote it all down in advance so he couldn't do anything except save you. This is all grace, grace, grace. Remember that. Erica's going to play a little music and the elements are going to be handed out.
Paul wrote, I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Micah, if you would, would you stand up where you are and let's thank God for the broken body of Jesus Christ. When he's finished, Shane, could I impose on you? Would you stand up and thank God for his shed blood? Father, we are so thankful for the body of your son, Christ Jesus, who was crushed, broken, bruised because of our sin. As we take this bread in remembrance of that event that fell upon him, weight of our sin, he felt that in his body. We're so thankful for that, Lord. Amen. Thankful for the deliverance that comes, that pleased the Father to crush him. We don't have to taste the wrath of God because he tasted it for us. Praise God. Thank you for the broken body. Jesus' name. Amen. Dear Lord, thank you for sending your son Jesus and for him shedding his blood for us, even though we're unworthy and being crushed by the darkness so that we can live forever, eternally in the light. Thank you. When he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One of my favorite parts of Jesus' last supper with his apostles is that he said, but as for me, I will no longer drink this fruit of the vine till I drink it new with you in the kingdom. I'm telling you, he's coming again. And he's going to do everything else that is written about him. And that includes saving all his people and establishing his kingdom until, as he told us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one day, holiness is going to break out on planet earth because it says so. And it's right there in front of you. He lives. He lives Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? It's written right here. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.